darkly splendid abodes. The official podcast of Toronto Thelema. Exploring, if you will, practical philosophy. From science and the workings of the mind, to spirituality, esotericism, and magic. Stooping down, dipping my wings, I came into the darkly splendid abodes. Marjorie Cameron was an artist, poet, actress, and magician. Jack Parsons believed he'd conjured her through his Babylon working, and she would come to see herself as the vehicle for the incarnation of Babylon in the world. Rosemary Stilik and I will take a closer look at this maverick artist as we continue to explore women of the occult. What thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is a law. Love under will. Welcome back, Rosemary. Thank you again for having me. Today we we are uh, going to be taking a look at Marjorie Cameron. That's right. Who, uh, interestingly enough, is eloquently dovetailing Lady Frida Harris mm. into the California OTO. The Californians, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who she had no truck with. <laughs> Absolutely no use for those Californians. Those wild Californians. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think we uh, had mentioned um, Kenneth Anger showing his film in in England. Correct. Yes, and uh, she was present for that showing. Mm-hmm. His film uh, inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. I believe it was uh, his, like, he's trying to pay homage to the legacy of Aleister Crowley, but Lady Frida Harris was having none of it. <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't rep- represent Thelema or Thelemites. <laughs> and, and was pretty outspoken about it in his mm. face. So Yeah, apparently she, she was uh, um, browbeating him so badly, eventually he just gave up and, and uh, <laughs> his, laughed. His absolutely humble offering of a gift was tossed angrily to the floor as he stormed out. <laughs> uh. Oh, Kenneth. <laughs> Love you. Who, yeah. Who is still alive? Yeah. Amazingly enough, I would he refuses love to <laughs> relinquish this world. I would love to be able to have the privilege for us to interview. Wouldn't Kenneth that Anger. be amazing? Wouldn't it be cool if? Uh, <laughs> I I always think about these kinds of things because there's so many people that uh, I would love my heroes mm-hmm. that I would love to meet and. Uh, um, and I, I constantly fantasize about what it would be like. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, unfortunately, I miss my opportunities with so many of them. So wouldn't it be cool if we uh, managed to uh, uh, actually chew the ear? Seriously, he'd chew our ears, I think. <laughs> <laughs> the great Magus, now in his 90s. Yeah, yeah. Profound. Yeah. And uh, um, So, yeah, the Californians. The Californians. Uh, we had... Um, Jack Parsons mm-hmm. as being uh, somebody who um, I mean I I I want to say that he was kind of a, a good point to start from absolutely which makes total sense with Marjorie Cameron it's uh, it's funny because as I'm thinking about it just the Californian group 
this is like the Agape Lodge of OTO uh, in its incarnation as it uh, as it came back into being. That's in right. California. And I love hearing you saying like that, saying it, because I often say Agape Lodge. Mm. Tomato, tomato. Yeah, you know, Thalema, Thalon. I was going to give a completely unknown pronunciation of Thalema for a second there. But, uh, but that was the lodge that um, mm-hmm. was prevailing in California, yeah, carrying on the legacy of our beloved Alistair Crowley. And there was so many characters in this mm-hmm. lodge, like uh, Wilfred T. Smith is the, uh, <laughs> yeah. the lodge master mm-hmm. for quite a bit of time there, and he himself seems to have been quite the... Uh, um, the character who instigated this whole kind of bohemian uh, world that seemed to develop around. Yes, the it almost became like a mecca of um, creative, iconoclastic energy. Mm-hmm. Almost like the the energies that this thing took on were what laid the blueprint for mm-hmm. not just the the beatnik <laughs> movement to come, um, the beat movement i should probably call it rather yeah, than the beatnik, beatnik. Yeah. <laughs> being as beatnik was a derogatory term towards it but uh, mm-hmm. but then also the the hippie movement and mm-hmm. uh, the whole uh, the psychedelic revolution to yeah. follow after that of course yeah exactly and there's like so many positives and so many uh, so many mind expanding things that came out of this a lot of negatives of course as well mm-hmm. but and, uh, and such an ecosystem like the convergence of so many people places and things into a vortex of revolutionary energy to welcome in the new aeon which was mm-hmm. which was the desire of course yeah extremely exemplary mm-hmm. of these new aeonic energies mm-hmm. much to the chagrin of Aleister Crowley at the time. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> he was the stuffy old man, go figure, uh, who is... <laughs> These children are out of control. <laughs> <laughs> I hear one of them's got some damn fool ideas about making a moon child. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and so he was uh, critical of uh, Jack Parsons apparently wanting to create some kind of a moon child mm-hmm. and having this Babylon working that he was That's doing. Right. Um, and uh, he was uh, uh, doing it... As a matter of fact, with <laughs> see, there's so many characters that come into it is, play here. It's, it's actually mind expanding. You can't make this stuff up. If you wrote a story with all these elements to it, it would not. It would just be you know, you'd take you out of the story because it's mm-hmm. just ridiculous. At some point, you're like, okay, you know, come well, on. Well, just to begin with, as you wisely um, placed Jack Parsons as the milestone for this convergence, this vortex of energy, you have his brilliance as a rocket engineer and a chemist mm-hmm. by day <laughs> and an occultist and a magician you know a magical worker by night mm-hmm. and all of the converging communities and people and societies that kind of found each other and uh, became catalysts in each other's lives to really push themselves beyond their own perceived limitations as a human entity absolutely yeah and he uh he really enabled this whole group to continue to subsist um just by the by virtue of the fact that he uh, had inherited a mansion Mm -hmm. and put it immediately to that use that's right which he called the parsonage yeah (laughs) um and so it became almost like a for lack of a better term um 
a commune before communes. Yeah. <laughs> attracting every wayfaring soul and revolutionary and visionary uh, that boasted the presence of such eccentric characters as L. Ron Hubbard <laughs> as yeah. a lodger. Who and who would become his uh, co-worker in this Babylon? Yes, working. absolutely. Um, subsequently, not only scribe but also like um, entrepreneurial partner in their visions. Because of course, as we backtrack, uh, one of Jack Parsons' uh, talents of many was his obsessive focus on um, revolutionizing jet-propelled. Um, machinery mm-hmm. and he placed so much of his natural gift for this engineering prowess that he had into his interests that he was a part of a group of engineers that were that came to be known as the suicide squad <laughs> <laughs> because they experimented in the desert with such profound explosive technology mm-hmm. uh, that it, it was basically like a bunch of rebels just like seeing where they could take things right yeah and i mean he was running pretty fast and loose at least it seemed because Mm -hmm. uh he was not the sort of university level mind that these others were i mean Mm -hmm. he certainly was that kind of a mind but he was not uh as well educated Mm -hmm. and all that sort of thing he was kind of a maverick in that sense absolutely and and uh to jump on to your statement of him as a maverick this is what makes it so natural to see him engaging in occult workings by night that nobody knew of. I Mm. find that duality, uh, where other people would have seen it as absolutely bonkers at the time, I actually see it as somebody who was striving to break through the stratosphere of consciousness and into the future. And so with that being the foundation of his uh, soul energy... It makes sense that he would draw like a magnet the presence of Marjorie Cameron eventually into mm-hmm. his life. Yeah, and this is the ultimate. It may seem a little meandering uh, to, <laughs> to the casual <laughs> <it> all, listener. <laughs> it all it comes all, together. It all ties in. <laughs> yes, so uh, that's right. L. Ron Hubbard and uh, Jack Parsons mm-hmm. were in the desert <laughs> <laughs> performing rituals Doing to invoke... The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what would they were doing the John D. Edward Kelly um Yeah, they were doing apparently it sounds like a bit of a mishmash, so it wasn't like uh they were doing it in the you know, sort of by the book kind yeah. of way. They were taking a bunch of different things uh relating to that and, and doing sort of stirring it in a big pot. Mm-hmm. And they their intention, or at least Jack's intention, because essentially it was him driving this this mm-hmm. whole working. Uh, his intention was to invoke the energies of Babylon, who, of course, uh, appears in the vision and the voice and is alluded to in the Book of the Law, mm-hmm. uh, although the the name Babylon does not come up in the Book of the Law. So his intention seems to have been to uh, invoke the energies of Babylon into the world mm-hmm. and uh, e- even to the point of potentially uh, incarnating Babylon mm-hmm. in, in the flesh. In a physical being. Yes. And so uh, they were doing this in the desert together. And who should respond to the call? (laughs) The one and only Marjorie Cameron. Mm -hmm. Who, of course, in her own right, had a very powerful presence. 
and was extremely desirous of breaking out of any stereotypical role that she felt her era expected of women to fulfill. Mm-hmm. So quite early on in her life, uh, showing a propensity for the arts in a very strong way, she almost, in some of the writings that we read about her in childhood, strikes me as somebody that had synesthesia or something. Mm. You know, the person that can, like, smell purple or... <laughs> see see uh, um, colors for music and yeah, sound and that sort of thing. definitely yeah. sounded like someone who had that... Aspect about her. Um, She related very much as a child to mystical, otherworldly dimensions and had shown an early gift for the arts. And so, between like her artistic aspirations and her natural drive as an individual that wanted to live a greater life than she came from, born in Mm -hmm. a very humble village or town bell plain in iowa or something like Mm -hmm. that um her aspirations led her to join wave at a very young age which was recruiting women during the second world war to help with the with the mission the military mission of Mm -hmm. the united states so she would have been a part of the extra labor yeah to hold up the um, the mantle of the power of the United States while the boys were off fighting. Mm-hmm. And uh, she ended up joining the Navy. So these were Navy women that had very, um, you know, very determined um, alpha roles <laughs> in the cause mm-hmm. sort of thing. So she had a military background, which is fascinating didn't last long but she <laughs> she did have uh, i think it's more of a testament to the strong nature of her of her being of her personality so in the military she became a drafts person putting her That's artistic right. skills to use and she ended up uh becoming very uh, admired for her draftsmanship mm-hmm. That's right. In uh a lot of the uh, um application of cartography mm-hmm. being one of them. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's uh, and she's described as being sort of having masculine qualities, mm-hmm. and I feel like this is kind of nicely exemplary of how she's uh, she's both hyper feminized mm-hmm. and hyper masculinized, if that's the correct mm-hmm. terminology to use for it. But she's, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. She definitely, and interestingly enough, because as she moves into the deeper aspects of her life and experience. She seems to find herself in extremely um, competitive circles, not only the military, but later on down the road in the realms of Hollywood, Mm -hmm. (laughs) in a male-dominated film industry. So um, from the absolutely wonderful book written by uh, Spencer Kansa that uh, both Darren and I read in preparation, he talks very much about that. He talks about... Um, perhaps her strong-willed nature being perceived as masculine because there were specific expectations of how women should behave, and she definitely broke through that mm. that glass ceiling. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You get the sense that uh, people were just struck by her. Yeah, 
and she seems also aloof, which makes total sense mm-hmm. given everything. Uh, it's just sort of par for the course for mm-hmm. anybody of our ilk, I think, <laughs> to be somewhat outsider and to be standing somewhat aloof mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Absolutely. And uh, so um, I could see that laying the foundation for her being a very formidable occultist down the road in order to kind of keep that stoic space mm-hmm. in the eye of the hurricane. Yeah. Yeah, and she she seemed to have a, a great strength, um, just the type of person who could walk into a room and just suddenly all eyes would be on her, mm-hmm. you know. And at some point, it should be very important to note that um, she did drop the Marjorie part of her name and decided to go by a mononym of Cameron. Mm-hmm. Again, I feel it was her way of rebirthing herself mm-hmm. into this sort of strong, towering embodiment of the Babylon current. Mm-hmm. I like the fact that it's like uh, very well could have come from uh, the military as well, just mm-hmm. from force of habit. Of, That's right. You know, referring to people by their last name. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I almost feel like uh, later on people would refer to her sarcastically as Marjorie just to get under her skin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, uh, um, yeah, utilizing it as an insult. <laughs> mm-hmm. But to bring things back, we have her arriving out of nowhere, seemingly out of nowhere, mm-hmm. uh, at the parsonage That's one day. right. That's right. And this is after the war, well, I guess I should say during the Babylon working. Mm-hmm. And it seems to Jack to have been in direct response to it. That's right. Um, there's a point where she, uh, later on down the line, is able to discover after Jack's death, uh, she's going through his diaries and, and his uh, leftover materials, which she, uh, she kept hold of mm-hmm. for some time. And um, she discovered all this stuff in hindsight, but she didn't know it at the time. That's right. She was oblivious to this whole thing. And, you know, focusing on that Babylon working, um, she was very much considered to be the elemental Mm -hmm. of Jack's invocation. Now, I find I really wish that we had um, some evidence of what exactly he did in that circle but um uh yeah it is uh definitely a synchronicity that i feel was so deeply karmic that it affected cameron's life unto the end and it was a thing that was both a phantasm and a muse Mm -hmm. in her artistic existence and she also embodies the consciousness and and sort of vitality of somebody that sees art as life and life as art. Mm -hmm. I deeply relate to that. One of my favorite things to say is um, I want to be a living work of art in perpetual motion. Hmm. And I see her living that way. She definitely embodied that. Yeah. And I mean, just to backtrack a little, if we're going to get more intimate about Cameron. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to share a little bit of a background of her cosmological being. Cool. <laughs> uh, she was born on April 23rd of 1922, which makes her Taurus, makes mm-hmm. total sense. <laughs> uh, and she's considered at 
this point of history to be an American actress, artist, and occultist, who was, of course, destined to move into a higher plane of the occult by the end of her life, uh, sealed by her union with Jack Parsons. Mm -hmm. And uh, many great uh, works of film, poetry, art, ritual, have been birthed from that uh, star-crossed union. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's amazing how influential she's been. Absolutely. And um, even in spite, you could say, mm -hmm. in spite of herself, because mm -hmm. she was not prone to uh, showing her work very often. There's yes. a couple of showings, but you could count them, I think, on one hand. Yes. And uh, not only that, but she was in a few different fits over the years. She had destroyed her own works or didn't value them at the time to the extent that other people would come to value them mm -hmm. um, simply because she felt that, well, I've already created it and it exists on the astral at this point. So. Absolutely. She saw it as having an imprint in the macrocosm. And for somebody to hang on to their own creations was something that she perceived to be vanity, mm -hmm. which is kind of ironic because um, she very much was devoted to being a living archetype of beauty and strength and mm -hmm. power. Yeah, you know, I think there's, uh, there's. it sounds to me from uh, this book that we were talking about, mm -hmm. Wormwood Star, The Magical Life of Marjorie Cameron, mm -hmm. uh, it sounds to me like uh, there was probably a bit of an oscillation in this respect, at least during uh, a set period of her life because of the fact that she seemed to go through a period uh, where she was struggling against some of that absolutely and yes. trying to be more ascetic about it at one point cut her hair all off mm -hmm. intentionally to mm -hmm. uh to counter this i guess you could say um uh glamour mm -hmm. of the path so to speak that's right and so she was uh i i think uh Kansa describes her as having um pretty much uh embodied Joan of Arc. Yes, in that she respect. was very much obsessed with Joan of Arc. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting because um, in the Babylon working, uh, I'm sure that Jack Parsons had the desire to bring forth a very glamorous and, um, you know, visually stunning, strong embodiment of the feminine current that he went down to describe into detail, like red flaming hair and green mm. eyes and and here she comes, you know. <laughs> I find it very interesting that he had this deep working with LRH, as I scribe off to the side, mm. whom, you know, later on, he comes to play a very uh, curious um, confidence trickster role in Jack Parsons' life. And it, it, he was somebody that for many, many years, Cameron had a deep animosity toward because she felt um, it, when they were doing the Babylon workings and LRH, as we will call him, uh, was scribed for Jack Parsons, she believed that LRH was lifting a lot of the genius of Jack Parsons' rituals for his later developed system of ascension that comes to mm. birth itself in the Scientology religion. Yeah, it seems as though he uh, basically saw the OTO 
as a pyramid, a potential yes. pyramid scheme in the making. Absolutely. And Crowley picked up on this. He's yeah. like, who is this man? Like yeah. he kind of reprimanded Jack. Um, it's hilarious because uh, one of my closest beloveds who doesn't wish to be named uh, refers to LRH as one of the greatest chaos magicians of the 20th century because <laughs> he just life hacked right through Jack Parsons' life literally lifted his life savings mm -hmm. and had this whole scheme that he tried to pull Jack Parsons into um, wh where he like bought yachts and then was going to go on some sailing trip. So he proceeded to like, <laughs> just like basically lift everything out of Jack Parsons' life yeah. and went on this journey and, and Cameron's like freaking out, you know, like, <laughs> who is this man? Yeah. Um, and so anyway, just to get back to Jack Parsons, um, I think that he was very trusting and passionate and visionary. So he would throw himself full on into something mm -hmm. with the desire to have uh, success. Like I think he was trying to create a, another entrepreneurial business with uh, LRH. And Cameron uh, was always extremely suspicious mm -hmm. of it. Yeah, I know she resented him for years and years after absolutely. Jack's death. And In getting back to that, it would be absolutely um, understandable that the magnets of Cameron and Jack Parsons would draw closer. And um, this kind of like, with the falling out of with uh, L. Ron Hubbard, it ended up being that shortly thereafter, um, Jack Parsons did sell the parsonage. Mm -hmm. And this was going to start the whirlwind travel of Cameron and Jack Parsons to Mexico, I believe, mm -hmm. like San Miguel. And now, was it just Cameron that went there and Jack stayed behind? Yeah, at first. That's the way I'm picturing it. At yeah. first, yes. And, but there was like, there were multiple trips down there. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that um, Cameron and Jack Parsons were striving to do was to salvage their marriage that was disintegrating at that point because they were both uh, extremely promiscuous. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I think Jack was uh, a big believer in his understanding of Crowley's system of Thelema uh, worked and how that regarded relationships and that sort of thing. And he saw the idea of sexual or romantic jealousy as being uh, ridiculous and childish. And ironically, though, ironically, it would be Crowley that would pipe up and say, you individuals are utilizing the OTO's system for wanton hedonism <laughs> and forgetting the great work. Yeah. So his kind of bone of contention was that nobody's doing the Everyone's just <laughs> having this massive, like, wild bohemian yeah. um, escapade together. You know, this is the funny thing. I mean, going back to... Uh, Lady Frida Harris reacting to Kenneth Anger's uh, portrayal of mm -hmm. Thelema. And uh, the same thing here with Crowley uh, reacting to the Agape Lodge members' interpretation of Thelema. Yeah. Uh, it, it's fascinating to me because it seems as though you have the initial idea being set forth. Mm -hmm. And then when it's taken on by others, there's a tendency for some kind of degradation to be happening. Yes. And uh, it's, it's one of those things where <laughs> it's all fine and dandy to be liberating yourself in a certain way, but it can't just be all the glory. You can't be afraid to do the laundry. Yeah. And I think that was basically 
what Crowley was getting at. Yeah, it's there's a balance involved, and it's not like I mean, even in in uh, Liber Libellum, mm-hmm. it specifically says all this discipline may seem the opposite of freedom, but you have not yet known true freedom. Mm-hmm. So he was really emphasizing the idea of discipline being at the root mm-hmm. of true freedom. And so you know, um, there they are, cavorting in their Californian lodge, and. Um, It was very fascinating to see how many people's lives crossed paths being there. Um, So while Jack Parsons was still, you know, fiddling about with his explosive world um, and... Literally and (laughs) 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 metaphorically. Oh, my heart goes to Jack. Um, You know, they did float around to various areas of, of residence, Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the areas that they did land in in L.A. resulted in a Cameron meeting that uh, socialite, Samson Debreer, mm-hmm. who seemed to have been quite the catalyst in bringing a lot of people together. That is the individual through which Cameron meets Kenneth Anger and the avant-garde filmmaker Curtis Harrington, who would later go down to do the 10-minute tribute video of Cameron Wormwood Star. Mm-hmm. Now, this is after Jack's death, is it It not? is after Jack's death, yeah. yeah. So uh, we have uh, this little bit of a space. It's amazing how small it is, too. Mm-hmm. Um, there's um, in 1952, Jack yes. uh, dies in a in a tragic accident in his home, in their home, mm-hmm. uh, where he has his uh, essentially illegal chemical lab mm-hmm. he's using to uh, to help create chemicals for explosives used in film and... Uh, That's uh, right, in and, the film industry. Sort of, yeah, so... And so he uh, uh, has an accident there where he's... It's terrible to think about, too, because it's like this whole thing where they're... Cameron and Jack are making all the plans and arrangements mm-hmm. to go down to Mexico together. Yeah, just to try to rekindle their marriage because of all of the, yeah. you know, all of the uh, frolicking causing so many um, waves of dissonance between them. They genuinely wanted to, you know, salvage mm-hmm. the sanctity of their union. And while Cameron was away doing whatever role or um, organizing or errands to prepare for that, it was Jack in a rush yeah. Back at their place, um, trying to like, you know, pull off a quick job, yeah, um, and not having the usual steely concentration that he had in the past, just by virtue of um, being distracted. Yeah, it's not a virtue, but, yeah. <laughs> um, but <laughs> uh, thanks to this distraction, you know, this thing <laughs> basically blew him to bits, which is yeah. terrifying to to fathom and he was still alive yeah when he was found his whole arm had been torn off and his face was and they and they had like a mutual friend i cannot remember the individual's name that had found jack in that state and they whisked him to a hospital and it was through that whole process that um cameron came to understand something's happened something terrible's happened um that was a massive turning point for her life that ironically for all of her resistance of the babylon workings and speaking of philema and the like mm. it truly was the thing that catapulted her into the deep 
chasm of her occult transformation. Yeah, I mean, this would have been extremely jarring. I know we were mm-hmm. talking briefly earlier about she she came to think that, to believe that uh, the FBI might have uh, done something. Yeah. You know, this might have been some assassination, essentially, because uh, part of the reason for them leaving was the fact that Jack was looking for, he couldn't really get work in, mm-hmm. in, his, in the rocket fuel industry anymore in the States because of problems with the uh the fbi and with uh you know his um uh just circumstances and whatnot so he was trying to uh either go to mexico or to israel and he had a job offer in israel that he was trying to nail Mm -hmm. down and And he was working for the jet propelled laboratories which is actually a precursor to nasa yeah and think about the fact that with him working Uh, in that industry, he would have exposure to the military as Cameron did. And these, this is the fifties. So you've got the sort of like weird cold war vibe. Yeah. And even going Um, back like to, uh, they met in 46. So, mm -hmm. and both of them had been involved in indirectly with, uh, world war Mm two. Um, well, I guess directly, but you know what I mean? Like they weren't, yeah, they weren't like in the front lines, but but they were, they were working behind the scenes towards, Mm -hmm. you know, all the technology. That's right. Yes. And so like, as a result of that, both of them were prone to paranoia about being spied on by the FBI. Mm-hmm. And this is a case where there's legitimate reasons for them to be paranoid about that yeah. because it was true <laughs> and here's it, the thing in too. one capacity or another. Here's the thing, too. Um, Jack Parsons, you know, just being the explorer that he was, uh, did have a brief stint of looking into um, socialist paraphernalia, like uh, mm-hmm. publications and stuff, not because he wanted to join a communist party, just because he's expanding his mind, yeah. um, educating himself as to the 360 degree ambiance of the world at the time. But that was seen as something uh, suspicious. Yeah. Um, oh, as, absolutely. At that time, it was... Uh, yeah. It yeah. was like, are you making, are you engaging in scientific technology that you're going to sell to the communists? Like, mm. it was like that kind of weird, yeah. <laughs> you know. I mean, this is the time that we get that term blacklist from, yeah. you know. And even if he was enthusiastic about socialism in his, in, mm-hmm. in that earlier time, uh, he certainly didn't feel that way later on. He was no, very no. much against the idea of uh, communism. And um, actually, Michael and I had been... Uh, doing a deep dip into uh, his essay, Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword. Mm-hmm. That was one of our previous, uh, um, actually a two-part episode. And uh, he's very much against the idea of yeah. communism and fascism as both trying to use freedom to convince you that they represent freedom, yeah. but they actually, in fact, are truly tyranny. Mm-hmm. So he was very much against the socialist ideas that uh, they were worried he was mm-hmm. in support of. And I mean, when you think of Cameron and Jack Parsons together, they were a powerhouse um, embodiment of freedom mm-hmm. that was <laughs> futuristic yeah. for the time. As you stated earlier, uh, a precursor to the beat movement. Mm-hmm. That's sort of like bohemian. <laughs> yeah. Everybody sitting together, exchanging intellectual thoughts and um, reading poetry. And at, by the way, Jack was a profound poet. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, later in Cameron's life, she became quite uh, literary, uh, poetic herself. But her strong suit was art, mm-hmm. her power, her visions 
were her fine arts, and how their worlds came together was beautiful by the end of their lives. In Cameron illustrating Jack Parsons' personal poetic tome, uh, Songs for the Witch Woman, Mm -hmm. which were directly inspired by Cameron as a living work of art in perpetual motion. (laughs) Yeah, which you were nice enough to bring your copy with you, and it's a beautiful, beautiful book. Yeah, I'd love to leave that here for you until we interview again so you can look through it. Thank you Um, so much. But getting back to Cameron, because I want to make sure that uh, people understand her greatness, her sensibility of art, line, form was profound. And she had many opportunities um, to utilize them in unconventional ways and and to um, subsist somewhat on them, which became more of an issue after Jack's death. Mm-hmm where she became a wandering soul of the world. Yeah, I think she, uh, it seems as though the impression is that she, I suppose, got comfortable when she was with Jack because he was yeah. kind of taking care of her and, and mm-hmm. covering her expenses for her traveling and that sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, as we mentioned, he wasn't the jealous type, or at least he tried uh, tooth and nail not to be. Mm-hmm. And um, so he he funded her going to Mexico on her own and that sort of thing. And and so uh, I think probably when he died, um, she was stuck and she was really genuinely like, how am I going to take care of myself? What am I going to do? And there were many, many sort of like wanderings through the desert. Mm -hmm. and uh, Literally. Literally (laughs) uh, relocating to Mexico, coming back to Hollywood, like back and forth, crisscrossing the world. And a lot of times with the most frugal. Um, yeah, circumstance. I think yeah. she was even, uh, I don't know if it was in Nevada, but it was uh, um, in the desert in California or mm. Nevada or somewhere around there where she was squatting in a place for a while. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, it sounded like a good circumstance. It's kind of neat to think of uh, <laughs> yeah. these buildings that you can just kind of go hold up and, and she, she had a life for herself, but she was mm-hmm. very solitary. Very solitary mm-hmm. um, and grew deeper and deeper into her witchiness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's funny because if we were to backtrack a little bit... Um, Jack Parsons, when he did have his most blissful honeymoon uh, phase with Cameron, introduced Cameron to many systems of magic and tried to encourage her to go down those roads. Um, She did read, you know, James Fraser's The Golden Bough, Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And the thing she ended up really gravitating toward, which is an interesting dovetail from Lady Frida Harris, was the tarot. Mm-hmm. The tarot, it, of course, she's an artist, so yeah. it spoke very deeply to her in her process. And her artistic prowess was so intense that in 1947, she was to travel to Paris because she was striving to enroll in the Académie de la Grand Chaumier mm-hmm. in order to become a student there. And she was simultaneously going to try to seek out Crowley in England because by this point, Crowley was just like down on Parsons. Like, you failed me. Um, yeah. I don't know what you guys are doing there. This isn't a party. You know, like he's he been calling Parsons his magical son. He was calling him his son. At yeah. Some point. So he was his protege and everything. Yeah. So he so Cameron was trying to get down there for two reasons for her own artistic. Um, 
goals and aspirations, which goes to show the strength and uh, independence of her spirit, mm-hmm. but to simultaneously try to assuage the the sort of like <laughs> the yeah. smear campaign that speak on behalf of uh, yeah. Jack, yeah. But then, of course, 1947, she reaches there and realizes, for whatever reason. Um, the fates did not make it destiny for her to be in that school. She was not accepted as she thought she was. And then Crowley dies. Yeah, just before she has any chance to get there. So it's just, she just has blow after blow. And imagine 47 all the way up to 52. Mm-hmm. You know, just after marrying uh, Jack Parsons in 1949 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, somewhere around there. And then Jack dies. Yeah. So... This is truly the foundation of her being the esoteric seeker. Mm. It really thrusts her into it full force. Yeah, I think up until that point, she was probably very much still kind of of the earth and in the earth. And uh, um, Jack's, you know, obsession with the occult and whatnot Mm -hmm. was not sort of hers by Mm -hmm. any means. But uh, after the fact... She's trying to put the world back together mm-hmm. again after it's been, you know, blown apart for her. Yeah, and it it becomes quite a, it becomes quite a uh, traumatic, yeah, experience for with her, you know, moving into the future without her soulmate. Mm-hmm. There are many aspects of that experience that resonated deeply for me, like having that uh, connection with your occult life partner high priest, magical worker, teacher, mm-hmm. um, etc. And it have it be rent from your experience yeah. so violently. Um, I felt deeply for Cameron. And she then goes full on into her magical path mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah. Is that orphan of the universe, you know? <laughs> um, it's fascinating. Yeah, I think she... Uh she, as I mentioned before, she started to look into uh, some of the materials that were left behind. Mm-hmm. So there was like a, a chest yes. that belonging to Jack, and uh, there was his diaries and uh, his magical dagger was there yeah, as well. And yeah, and he had made her an am- like a talisman mm. as well that she wore all the time mm-hmm. as her connection to him. Yeah, and I, I think uh, there was a lot of stuff that he didn't talk to her about Mm -hmm. he kept to himself like including the purpose of the babylon working Mm -hmm. and and the her role in in it as far as he was concerned and that sort of thing he didn't he didn't shove that on her he didn't you know he didn't worry her about it or anything like that but it's interesting though it really made her dive more deeply into being active disciplined focused on creation so she strove to have shows here and there. Um, she kept meeting. She had kept having these auspicious chance meetings with these influencers with before influencers existed. Yeah. Um, these powerhouses of people of influence. Um, uh, one of which led her to having an exhibition uh, in 1956, I believe, where. Mysteriously, as it came to happen down the road, all of her works perished in a fire in this gallery Mm. um, in Brentwood. Um, And it's like this recurring um, answer to her, her consciousness of her work existing in the the astral. astral. Mm. 
this world kept stealing away her work in the form mm. of fires and theft and so-called um, mysterious misplacements. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she ended up being on a cover of an art journal mm-hmm. called Semina, mm-hmm. which really exposed her to a whole other artistic community of avant-garde seers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and that she, in that, she did cut off her hair. Um, yeah, so she appears as, almost as Joan of Arc. <laughs> yes, she does. It's, it's extremely haunting, stark. Mm-hmm. Um, not the way you her. picture her, you no. know, usually, no. but, uh, and, uh, I do, I, I'm not sure if this is what they were going for, if there's a different, uh, Latin language, uh, that they were using, uh, but in Latin, semina means seeds. Interesting. Like that. Yeah, that's pretty, uh... <laughs> That's kind of a cool, uh, especially considering the influence that, you know, her and I'm sure other artists mm-hmm. within it would have had. And she had, um, in that particular publication, which I think was in 1955, there were all sorts of wild convergences that were happening. She came to meet her future partner, Sherry Kimmel. Mm -hmm. That's a whole other story. (laughs) Um, But in this Semina work, she had the image that she portrayed following many peyote Mm -hmm. visions in the desert, as well as it was uh, accompanied by some poetry that she wrote herself Mm -hmm. and this is a very provocative image uh if it's the one i'm thinking of Mm -hmm. it's the uh yeah i think it's called peyote vision yes it is and uh it's especially i mean it's provocative by today's standard if you had it hanging in a Mm -hmm. in a gallery or anything like that but uh um by the standards of the 50s it would have been threatened by obscenity laws and i think when her work was shown that particular work which did end up like you know uh, causing quite a controversy. I think mm-hmm. it did cause the art show to be shut down. Yeah. Um, because of obscenity. <laughs> it was like one of the one of the people <laughs> yeah. there who was trying to defend the art show was like getting frustrated with the police and said, yeah. is this what you're looking for? And held it up and it's like, well, yes, like, well, that yeah, is, actually, as a matter yeah, of fact. The show's over. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just like, oh, wrong move, wrong move. Yeah. <laughs> so it kind of had the opposite effect of what he was going for. <laughs> Um, But it's interesting because shortly after that, like if we fast forward to around uh, 1961, she, Cameron, does end up reconvening with Kenneth Anger. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's wild because uh, this would have been following her inauguration of the Pleasure Dome uh, cameo, Mm -hmm. as well as the, as mentioned earlier, the... uh, Curtis Harrington appearance of her presence in the Wormwood Star. And this these two things expanded her artistic impact because she kept having these directors be fascinated to have her have cameos in their in their mm. in their films whether they be shorts or um or the like. Yeah. One of which was the Curtis Harrington film after Wormwood Star called Night Tide, Mm -hmm. where Cameron appears as this mysterious, dressed-in-black, witchy um, Mm -hmm. woman that at one point of the movie throws the evil eye into the audience, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, kind of having this 
film noir presence about it. Yeah. A little Hitchcocky. Yeah, it's got Dennis Hopper in it in a very early <laughs> yeah. role as well. <laughs> and it's funny, she kept meeting all these like people that would go on to be heavy hitters in the cultural oeuvre of our society. Mm. Um, she kind of was, she reminds me, this sounds insane, but she reminds me of the New York Dolls, mm. who very much were proto-punks. Yeah. The people that open the door for other people that end up speaking louder and more yeah. organized than yeah. the ones that were actually like pulling the flame like Prometheus from the gods. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I find those kinds of people uh, are fascinating because mm-hmm. they're, they're underground. They're kind of, they mm-hmm. never quite, you know, get the same fame, but they have such an influence. Yeah. So uh, Cameron goes on to create many fascinating works uh, artistically. And um, she strives to have some uh, reconvergence of sorts with Kenneth Angers for them to do future projects together, but it becomes a complex thing for Cameron because she very much was a powerhouse that operated most comfortably in power roles, Mm. you know, and so she was often perceived as strange and... uh, evil and you know people were suspicious of her and then you had all the friends that knew her more intimately like Mm. in various artistic communities that were like oh you're not seeing the full spectrum of Cameron she's very sensitive she's a seeress her dreams are profound her visions are deep Um, so there was this duality Mm -hmm. that swirled around her persona yeah Um, that's like so naturally Um, reflective of the artist and also of course the magician which is something we spoke about in our last interview like when you're deeply enrolled in the path of magic and you're so open to your shadow self it could be off-putting to other people I think she definitely lived that oh absolutely I think Mm -hmm. uh, she came to embody the image of the witch yeah you know in all all its connotations you know and many years of devotion to her art and, of course, her drug visions of her visions with magic mushrooms and uh, and the like, and the austerity of her life, traveling from desert to hovel to this, eventually did start to take a toll on her health. Mm-hmm. So I was profoundly blown away how she still managed to stay dedicated to yeah. her art, even in the midst of all of that. Mm-hmm. She was very ambitious with her interestingly enough with doing her will yeah and how philemic is that right (laughs) (laughs) and she did passionately identify as a thelemite and Mm -hmm. um she came to really in addition to uh having a whole different perspective on jack parsons in hindsight and her relationship to him and her uh perceived role and her understanding of herself after his death, uh, she also came to really have a strong opinion of Aleister Crowley as well, and became very enthralled with his writings and mm-hmm. and practices and that sort it's of. thing It's like she well. grew into him. Now, if we were to backtrack a little to the Californians of the mm-hmm. OTO faction, she did after Jack Parsons' death seek uh, like female support, a, a maternal protective relationship 
And she did end up having that with Jane Wolfe, mm-hmm. who was the presiding priestess of that OTO Lodge at the yeah, time. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. I didn't really realize how deeply she went into that. And yeah. she even ended up going into the, the AA mm-hmm. um, workings with the guidance of Jane Wolfe, which yeah. I find absolutely inspiring. I would have been fascinated to know more about that yeah. relationship. So despite her earlier resistance, she ended up moving deeper into her path on an occult level. Yeah, and she was doing practices of her own. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was not really, it, it seems like she was doing them for herself, by herself. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't the type of thing that, uh, uh, like, you, you will have her friends and, and people around her commenting on the fact that she would be doing these mm-hmm. things, you know, <clears throat> yeah. in her own way and that sort of thing. So, um, but it was always there. And I mean, even like in raising her child, she ended up having a daughter and she raised her daughter in what she perceived as being the Thelemic way. I mean, this again is one of those things that I think it's like, uh, uh, you can say that it's, um, you have Crowley's way of expounding these things and then it sort of takes on a different form for each person who who tries to go forward with it with all due respect to cameron but it took on a distorted light in her raising of her child because it turned out that crystal did become a very conflicted Mm -hmm. and um it didn't work. Troubled, you know, <laughs> individual. Yeah, I think yeah. this is child rearing is a difficult subject, mm-hmm. and I think I think it's difficult a difficult subject because none of us comes with instruction manuals. And exactly. Parents are just kids who have been old enough to <laughs> yeah. become parents. You know, so it's it's a it's not an easy thing to be a parent and. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you make your choices and then you've you've made those choices and mm-hmm. then you end up with the the, the consequences of yeah. that. You know? And I mean, she ended up moving down with her daughter to like West Hollywood mm-hmm. um, around the Genesee Avenue area in L.A., like toward the late 70s into the 90s um, when she was officially at that point a grandmother and et cetera. And I mean, this area had run into such a deteriorated state by that point, which it was once a golden age of of bohemian bliss there. But, I mean, bringing her daughter and grandchildren down to an area that became, like, a cesspool for crime and sex stores and, like, adult um, movie theaters. It's like, <laughs> it's like <laughs> the Babylon Ranch yeah. right there sort of thing. Yeah. And I guess we should mention that the 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 way that she chose to rear her daughter Crystal was it, allowing her all the freedom. She was she had honorable intentions. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, she really did. She wanted her daughter to be free because I mean she grew up herself, Cameron. If we do the full circle back to Iowa, in an extremely strict, religious, like mm-hmm. hardworking family, but very restricted, very mm. very restricted. Yeah, so I mean the natural thing was to mm-hmm. to rebel against that kind of thing and the unfortunate mm-hmm. thing is that uh things never seem to work quite right when you'd go complete opposite. Mm-hmm. It's <laughs> you know, kind you of like balance. um in the desire to free yourself from the Victorian restraints of the pr- previous generation things can get lost in the translation. Yeah, yeah. And I mean this is uh this is what we see with the whole 
um, initially the beat movement and then the hippie movement, mm -hmm. uh, we have this revolution, this massive revolution mm -hmm. that uh, that does wonderful things, as I mentioned, and mm -hmm. also does some terrible things. Yeah. And it's just, you know, the, the state of affairs. You can't really seem to have, you know, uh, a complete revolution where nothing goes wrong. Yeah. <laughs> now, you know, the good thing is, though, even down in the midst of all that sort of like chaos she still managed to create and even though her health was failing she slowly started to move deeper and deeper into the mysticism of the land so she was fully going into her deep spirituality and she ended up practicing tai chi she ended up still creating art uh, and at one point like i believe it was in the late 70s she created a series that I would love to know more about called Pluto Transiting the Twelfth House about mm -hmm. her explorations into death. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was suffering with so many health issues that she had a, like a little bit of a shaky hand thing going on, which is why I think it's amazing that she took up Tai Chi mm. because with the workings of the Chi, I believe she would have been able to have some sort of cellular regeneration of herself and help her mm. to push her through those final visions. Yeah. Um, if you've ever seen those images, you should um, go deeper into them. They almost look like electromagnetic frequencies caught mm. in a radio wave. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think she was starting to lose her vision over time as yes, well. Yes, she was. Yeah, which is terrifying. For yeah. <laughs> it's like a, you know, <laughs> the the greatest nightmare of all artists. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I, I always think, uh, well, okay, if I get older and physically unable to move around and stuff, at least I can read. But then, what happens if, <laughs> you know, if something happens to your eyesight or your just you know, terrifying? Yeah. So she pushed it to the furthest dimensions of her capacity. Um, and the legacy of which is profound. Like there's now very much a, a foundation to preserve the works of Cameron and Parsons. There's mm. actually like an organization, like the Cameron Parsons Foundation or something like that, yeah, yeah. that exists to this day, which allows us to have a lot of her work preserved. Yeah. Um, there have been many retrospectives of her work. But yeah, uh, getting back to The Wormwood Star by Curtis Harrington, if nobody has seen it, if anyone, uh, you know, can maneuver over to YouTube, I highly recommend you watch the uh, brilliant homage that Curtis Harrington put together of Cameron as an artistic force of nature. Um, it is called Wormwood Star with the subtitle of uh, like something like in honor of the language and knowledge or the knowledge and conversation with uh, the, the Holy, Holy Guardian, Guardian Angel, Angel. Yeah. as per Cameron, you as know, so um, that's not verbatim. It's uh, I'm paraphrasing, um, but if you go to that video, it it is the most poetic encapsulation of all of the threads of mystery that made Cameron the great artist that she is. And not only that, but it has a lot of her artwork portrayed that uh, most of it having been destroyed sometime afterwards. Yes, she destroyed her own works yeah. at some point, um, which is just... <laughs> a lot of people cried and were yeah. heartbroken. I would be too. Um, and so this is like a testament yeah. to the work that she did. 
But what's really beautiful about this video is that you not only see her visual arts, but you get to witness her in basically like a performance art style of presence. There's a ritualistic presence about it, all sorts of symbolism, Mm -hmm. all sorts of like... um, tips and nods to the mysteries through mm-hmm. objects um, and then with her own self invoking a prayer to her holy guardian angel from her inner being and um, it's seen as, seen as the ultimate alchemical transformation of the artist's struggle with putrefaction and all the various stages that you know the, mm-hmm. this sort of like the dark connections to the mysteries of the earth unto one's flourishing, unfolding into the phoenix of self, transmuting the base metals into gold of the artistic self, right? So I'm so grateful to Curtis Harrington for having done that because we would not see that full spectrum of her, of her magic. Yeah. Um, And you see it in this video. I mean, her presence is striking and formidable and haunting and even menacing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now you, uh, would you mind reading that little portion for us? Sure, I would love to. And this is basically uh, from the mouth of Cameron herself. Uh, she's calling forth unto her holy guardian angel. This is from Wormwood Star, which is actually a poem she took on as, I believe, a prayer that is connected to Jack's apocalyptic visions Hmm. and it goes as such seven times I rap upon the mighty door of this subterranean vault open open I stand with the drafty dark corridor that approaches thy lair seven times resound my summons on this stony door in the dead Sierra caves, curse the midnight hour. Come thou forth, I bear a lamp for this terrible darkness. Thou shalt behold that face known in dreams. Mine eyes are terrible and strange, but thou knowest me. Behold, my garments are of rich cloth, and I bear the air of a land of beauty beyond the sea. Come forth, thou art in the shadow of the light I bear, and thy garments reek of the dead in this sunless place. We shall ascend the stair that is fraught with unwholesome things. The stone road before me, and into the blazing vault of the night of nights we go forth as light. Dark star, I seek you in all the endless moons of the universe. I've entered the maze of chaos and searched the promise of no end and no fulfillment. But I have seen your helmeted head flashing gold from all the bloody triumphs and sunsets of this world. I've heard your voice singing lonely songs of desire in the world womb. I remember the artistry fingers that held the rose in wonder, your musical flute, sounding the hymn of love, seeking the birth in the crashing star nebulae. Mm. 
Sing limbs of muscle and star foam, pursued and pursuing radiant warrior. How long? In love of God, how long? How long? How long? That's beautiful. She blows me away. <laughs> like when I first heard that, I bawled my eyes out. It was so like, just solid, solid, a true witch and occultist. She did grow into the very thing that I think, um, I think she may have known this about herself because of the uh, magical reality that it is to be an artist. If you recall Crowley himself saying, that he would even dare to consider the artist one step above the magician because of the constant transference of vision through source. Mm -hmm. And that that connection is really what the magician strives for. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I believe she had that. Yeah, I think uh, when I was thinking about her, especially having already thought about Jack Parsons and having that as a comparison... I, I see her as being like a force of nature. Absolutely. You know, it's uh, it's not, it's apples and oranges in a sense, <laughs> yeah. you know? <laughs> so uh, um, I almost worried about that in a sense because it's like, how do you, how do you pin down mm -hmm. that, that force, mm -hmm. you know? But uh, it's something that's really uh, powerful and I can see why that would reverberate over time and across so many lives. Yes, and I'm, I'm very grateful to all the people that um, preserved her legacy in mm -hmm. film and art and the like because, of course, um, she carried her days to the best of her capacity um, until, like, at long last, by around 1995, she did pass away by that mm. point um, in her 70s. And before her death, she considered herself, which is hilarious, as uh, Spencer Kansa said, she considered herself an honorary uh, Thelemite and Scientologist. <laughs> 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 All right, LRH gets in there. <laughs> the ultimate chaos magician. <laughs> but that's it's just wild. And uh, she never felt like she was... She received the um, honor um, she should have had. Because if you, you know, I mean, I'm jumping all over the place here. When she passed away, she did receive Thelemic last rites mm -hmm. um, delivered by a, a priestess, of the, a high priestess of the OTO. So she was sent off in ceremonial um, majesty and her ashes were scattered in the Mojave Desert yeah. after her death. Yeah. Um, so for somebody that didn't relate to the system of Thelema. It's funny, that actually was also a struggle for Lady Frida Harris. The system. Maybe they were av adverse to the system yeah. um, in general, just on a primal level. Yeah, you know, I I think that's that's what stands out to me is that mm -hmm. she's an example of this primal energy. Yeah. And uh, so to try and pin that down using more of an intellectualization of it is is uh, futile. Yes. You know, and I think that's that 
that we can learn from because that primal energy is something that helped to change the world. Absolutely. You know? It was that explosive catalyst that needed to happen. I mean, yeah. look at these absolute iconoclasts like um, Kenneth Anger and, and Marjorie Cameron working together. It's insane. Mm. Um, one more volatile than the other. <laughs> <laughs> However, look at the the great works that were born of anger and Cameron's union. Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, I think we have, uh, again, we have Crowley kind of looking down as the stern paternal figure, <laughs> um, shaking his head at these Californian kids. And uh, <laughs> the funny thing being that uh, I, I always think there's a, there's good reason for him to have been critical. Uh, but at the same time, there's this energy that you just can't, control and it's not about controlling it and uh, i think that the younger generation perhaps i mean this is how all generations work really mm -hmm. the elders have wisdom to convey and the youth have their own futuristic wisdom to convey back it's yeah. it's the struggle of uh the intergenerational cooperation yeah. <laughs> um the empathy for each other's uh place i mean a lot of these individuals working in california were genuinely striving in their own way to break free from the the bondage of social norms mm -hmm. and they they did help to uh set the stage for future generations to mm -hmm. make it that much easier for future future youths <laughs> to be able to <laughs> those to youths <laughs> Or Utes, depending <laughs> yeah. on how you want to. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, a profound force of nature, mm -hmm. Cameron. And a link in the chain leading back through all time. Mm -hmm. Because she's helping to carry this energy forth as well. That's right. And, uh, and we can still carry it forth from her. Well, it's exciting because in 2014, actually, there was a retrospective of a show of Cameron's work in mm. Los Angeles in the Museum of Contemporary Art in L.A. that was called Cameron, Songs for the Witch Woman. Um, and it was the ultimate culmination of the work she did of poetry and fine arts that sealed the legacy of, of uh, honoring the union with her soulmate, Jack Parsons. Yeah, was that when this book that you have a copy of that was actually so, finally... Interestingly, that book I'm, I'm letting you uh, explore, which you're going to love, um, it is the result of uh, the Cameron Parsons Foundation, like that whole legacy to preserve the great works that they did together. Mm -hmm. so I'm hoping more secret little <laughs> gems come out from that. I'm sure there are many people still rooting around to see what they can find that didn't perish in a fire or an explode in a, <laughs> you know, in a... Yeah. I think there's there's anecdotes of uh, um, Sherry, as you mentioned, was uh, a future husband after she had, after Jack's yes. death. Uh, her her next husband, Sherry, had uh, at one point, I think, when he was frustrated and jealous, uh, threw some of yes. his uh, materials, Jack Parsons' materials, into the ocean. And this was part of the struggle between Cameron and anger. So he was noting the volatility of Cameron's life choices and struggling to get his hands on the OTO memorabilia and paraphernalia and 
desperately yeah. trying to <laughs> historically important artifacts mm -hmm. and not letting them perish yeah yeah so i mean one of his most beautiful uh installations in the uh the magic lantern cycle that he did was the lucifer rising installation that um he ended up trying to get jimmy page to do the soundtrack off but that ended up in disaster um mm -hmm for him to only go back to his original choice, which was uh, Bobby Beausoleil, who was um, in jail, unfortunately, for complications rising from his Manson connections mm -hmm. and the murders that followed thereafter. Uh, so the soundtrack there is the work of Bobby Beausoleil. But anyway, the reason why I'm bringing that up is because even with Jimmy Page, Anger was trying to uh, preserve the OTO memorabilia of... Um, Crowley's estate after mm. his death. So they were like in a bidding war. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. Is that how they met? They met at an auction? For, uh, uh, no, I believe like through all the interconnections of, okay. of uh, like Kenneth Anger going from California over to England or France or what have you. And like being in the European world, coming back to New York, I think through all those interconnections, all these different worlds mixed of musician and artist. And mm. it's through that. I mean, when when Kenneth Anger went to London, of course, he spoke of uh, of uh, Lucifer to the Rolling Stones, you know, <laughs> which he feels is the reason why they created their Satanic Majesty's request. Um, <laughs> so you know, all these intricate. This is what I mean about when we started all of this, and Cameron was like right in the center of all of this. Yeah. I mean, through Kenneth Anger, she met. Um, Anton LaVey <laughs> and he was starstruck by her because of, of seeing her cameo in Night Tide so mm -hmm. all of these wild yeah it's, you threads. can see Kenneth Anger as being like this mercurial character who he absolutely. very much identified yeah. with uh, through uh, uh, Puck absolutely and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then you, you can see Cameron as having her position as well, I mean, Babylon is the simplest way to put it, mm -hmm. but this fiery kind of... Uh, force of nature. Yeah, this force of nature. Mm -hmm. And so she's putting out this energy, and then others like Kenneth Anger are, are running out there and, and uh, like a pinball, <laughs> <laughs> sending it out to the world. <laughs> so my deepest respect to Cameron and her grand shimmering legacy of gold that she created out of... Extreme circumstances. Yeah. And she, uh, like, I mean, she, there's all these ways that she came out into the world uh, throughout her lifetime. Mm -hmm. But it seems like that was almost in spite of her, you yes. know, her way of life. It's like a higher fate was speaking through her as a current. Yeah. And no matter what she resisted, her, her greater purpose, I feel, won out. Mm -hmm. which I'm so inspired by, that direct connection to the sacred. Yeah. Uh, had the last word. Yeah. Had the last <laughs> word. So. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Rosemary. It is always an honor and a pleasure. 93. 93. Thank you for joining us. Look for Toronto Thelema on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Watch for events in the city. And join us again in the darkly splendid abodes. <laughs> <laughs>